0: Welcome to the Client Experience Collaborative podcast. This collaborative combines client Savvy's deep industry knowledge of CX and professional services firms and 16 years of client feedback gathering and analysis with CX Pilot's two decades of embedding CX into unique business-to-business cultures. This bi-weekly podcast is for firm executives and CX leaders looking for tips, secrets, ideas, and resources. From two of the CX industry's most innovative pioneers. To access this community and stay informed, go to clientexperience.com and join the mailing list today. And now, here's our host, Blake Godwin.
1: Hello again, this is Blake Godwin with the Client Experience Collaborative Podcast. Excited to be back with you all today. Uh, We have got a fantastic guest, one of my favorite people to speak to about M&A. Uh, discuss how client experience impacts the M&A process. Uh, Steve Guido from ROG, welcome to the Client Experience Collaborative Podcast. How are you, sir?
2: Blake, it is great to be here. Uh, I was excited to be able to participate this and have a good exchange with you. It's, it's great to be here in, in a very odd and somewhat surreal 2020 uh, for all of us.
1: Yeah, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. Hopefully the, the end is near, uh, Stephen Keith, Ryan Sadam, uh are both with us today. Stephen Keith is the founder and CEO of CX Pilots. How are you, my friend?
3: Great. How are you guys doing?
1: We're good. Good, good, good. And Ryan Saddam, of course, my business partner and partner in crime uh, at Client Savvy, the co-founder and CXO. How are you? Hey there, Blake. I am
4: uh, still wondering what Steve meant by... Uh, I hope the end is near. It's not something I really want to
1: hear in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the topic today, uh, we want to talk about revenue synergies, the M&A process, client experience, and how they're all intertwined. So I'm going to start, Steve, with you. Uh, The big picture, right? How is the M&A environment for AE firms today, given this unpredictable 2020?
2: Yeah, that's a great question to kind of start our conversation off with, and 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 I think even even a bigger macro picture from that is is generally speaking, um, the the two elements you need to, for 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 M and A volume is generally a CEO or or president or principal confidence and strong financial capitalization, and you have to remember coming into this pandemic, the the industry Blake has had some of the. Strongest levels of performance that we've had kind of post 2008 2009 recession. Um, Oftentimes, people will ask me how fast the industry is growing, how how is it performing? You know, one one simple way I look at it is is every April the ENR 500 comes out. I think that's a great proxy, it's a great benchmark for overall growth of the industry. Um, So, the, the ENR 500, US domestic revenue grew back-to-back back 9% in 18 or 19. And you have to compare that, generally speaking, with U.S. GDP of roughly around 25 to 3%. So ours is an industry that, that has really been growing at almost three times overall U.S. growth. So for those people coming into the first quarter where they had record backlogs were coming off of strong financial performance years. They couldn't find anybody to hire um, as, as unemployment was below one or 2% in major cities. The industry was in, in phenomenal shape coming into this. And, and that being said, 2018 and 2019 had two of the strongest years of, of and a activity that we've seen in, in, in a decade. And in a decade, really marked by by rampant consolidation when you think of so many great venerable names that have joined forces with others ours is a consolidating industry so so fast forward to now where we are in in 2020 and generally speaking even though m a volume is is down about 15 to 20 percent from last year that still puts us generally speaking with some of the volume we've had, and I would say kind of generally pretty decent years of 2014, 15, 16, the last two years were just so strong that it makes a a slower year like this pale in comparison. But I would say resilient M&A activity. We've still seen a number of companies looking to make acquisitions. And also, I would just say, finally, the fact that it's still resilient is still quite impressive with how many companies have made acquisitions last year, because typically when, when a company makes an acquisition, we'll talk about this in a minute, they spend a good six to 12 months integrating companies into their family. The fact that we there many firms are going through an integration process in addition to enhanced MA volume, I think is very bullish for this year. A lot of our clients are having very solid years this year, despite COVID-19. Obviously, next year is going to be a little bit of a wait and see, but I think strong financial year this year parallels with resilient M&A activity across the board.
1: Great answer. Um, So with the year being a little slower then, what is the rationale driving buyers and sellers today?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for the most part, um that really hasn't changed so much. Um I'm I'm actually quite satisfied to see the industry um kind of resilient and, and strong and durable as it was compared to 10 years ago. So we've continued to see companies go through succession plans. We've seen companies hire. Um, there's a lot of job posts outstanding if you go to other engineering boards or LinkedIn. So the the, the industry itself is actually in, in, in pretty decent shape right now. You also have to remember a lot of Engineering firms, construction firms were deemed um, essential businesses throughout this pandemic. So many of them haven't missed a beat. So I would say when when you look at buyers today, why they are continuing to acquire, it's primarily driven by growth. This is an industry where it's hard to find good people. Um, As I said, coming into this pandemic, we saw less than 2% unemployment for architects, for engineers, for chemists, for surveyors, for all trades. Um, so, so ours is is typically driven by getting access to people, access to talent. Um, that really hasn't changed so much, and 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 we've seen a lot of larger companies. Maybe they're strategic buyers. Maybe they're backed by a new breed of, of private equity buyers that really have some super growth ambitions in architecture and engineering. And really, the only way you get there is through aggressive M and A. And Blake, for sellers today. Um, you know, uh, ours is an industry and, and, and most of my clients are typically successful baby boomers, right. That have had a great 30 year run and oftentimes have limited transition alternatives to them internally. Uh, it, it might be hard to pass the baton to a younger generation who might not have the interest or financial resources. So many of them are turning to larger competitors to join forces with not, not only for, for the, for the financial part of it. But also, I think, realize that larger firms bring greater platforms, marketing resources, financial and managerial resources, recruiting resources to help them grow. Um, and I think many of them have seen their competitors go through that. So, so ours is a consolidating industry with the big getting bigger.
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of those are, are certainly driving factors. I mean, we we speak to a lot of firms. I want to comment on a few things that you said. You know, yeah. a lot of our clients who are who are very client centric focused are, are having great years, um, even though there's a lot of firms out there that that aren't. And some of the things I hearing I'm hearing for for driving factors is well, there's struggling firms in different geographies that we've been trying to penetrate for a while, and so they're utilizing the opportunity to go out and. Gobble up some of these smaller firms that are in struggling positions that is going to end up at the end of the day helping them with geographical or market sector expansion. You know, there's a lot of different goals. But one of the things that you brought up was, you know, they, they, they buy firms for people. They buy firms for human capital. They buy firms for staffing and resources to get more work done and, and grow with them. So that really kind of takes me into an interesting conversation because we've seen some really interesting things happen with M&A when a firm is buying another firm for its people. And I've seen it go really bad and I've seen it go really well. So what are the biggest, what are some of the biggest concerns you're seeing that employees are having during a merger or a sale?
2: yeah and 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 I would also add real quickly they're also and we can come back to this but they're also buying companies for clients and and trying to to maybe uh you know penetrate a new uh, a client sector group and and we can touch on that but 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 certainly um combining two disparate design firms of of different cultures of different people of different clients and different styles of work is always fragile it's 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 always fragile of putting it tape together and sometimes these deals work out great and sometimes they're train wrecks and the industry rumor mills know what deals big or small work out or, or, or don't work out over time people leave clients leave um, from from that perspective uh, but I think from the employee position um, if, if I'm an employee uh, at a company that's just been acquired I think the natural human reaction to any of that at, at the most fundamental elemental, individual level is what's in it for me. Um, you know, I, I I was happy working at this 42 person structural engineering firm or 80 person architecture firm. And we just joined forces with someone larger. What's, what's in it for me, what's in it for, for, for my career progression, what's in it for my ownership stake, uh, what's in it for my clients, uh, what changes in my role, what changes in where I work. So, um, and, and You know, keep in mind 10 or 11 years ago in the prior recession, when you had these mergers and the and the um, unemployment prospects were so bleak, people weren't leaving during integrations because they were just happy to have a job and were going to work through these combinations together. You know, today um, and and even still with 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 the pandemic uh, working its way through, unemployment rates really low. A lot of young, sharp people have great choices. So so buyers today have to be very careful to be able to communicate a value proposition for the talent they are bringing in. They do not want to give anybody an excuse to pick up a phone call from a recruiter once the news is disseminated or leave to join another organization. That is value, you know, um, uh, dilution walking out the door right after an acquisition.
1: Yeah. Ryan or Steven um what are some of the things you're dealing with i mean the, the both of you are are always involved discussing employee concerns when mergers
3: and acquisitions
1: happen uh Steven Ryan either one of you have some
3: perspective here yeah i think that one of the things that we notice like we're working with one client who is you know they're they're in the, a very very long protracted um M and A talk with it with another firm, and it's 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 so exhausting on the culture that we're working with. Um, to, to Steve's point, like we we notice the the employees thinking like, well, what's in it for me? But we also see this other thing that's a little bit further upstream, and that's a, like a oh crap, like am I even relevant um, in this? And I mean, that's something that tends to have that dilution value dilution effect all the way upstream. And then once the, you know, once people understand that their, their, their position is safe, they they actually do provide value um, before, during, and after the sale or or merge um, then a whole new problem emerges, which is um, how are we going to actually Get along like how? How does how does the way that we've always communicated and the, the connections we have to leadership? How are those going to change? And um, how am I going to uh, perpetuate my career? You know, from this point forward. So, from a from a CX perspective or an employee experience perspective, there's all kinds of stuff that we know that. The folks in the AEC industry are not as adept as some other industries, potentially, in preparing a lot of uh, people for, for these events up, upstream, midstream, and downstream. And I know, that's Blake, that's one of the things you want to get to a little bit later, but that's what, you know, one of the things I've noticed.
1: Sure. Ryan, I'd love to hear from you, too. I know you've, you've got a, a lot of perspectives on why buy and also employee concern. What's your thoughts here?
4: Yeah, just, just thinking about what Steve said, what Steven just said here, it really is all connected. And uh, what I really heard a lot from Steve is that most firms are going out there when they're looking to purchase or merge. They're really thinking about how are they going to create value for the shareholders, the owners, either the owners who are being purchased or the owners who are doing the purchasing. And, and, you know, they're thinking about employees as a labor force or thinking about clients as a source of revenue. And Steve really tapped into the fact that there there's human beings here that are all part of this. And, and really, you know, you're not buying factories and equipment and inventory like you do in other industries, you're buying relationships and, and that, that can have a real icky feel. So I wonder, uh, Steve, I'd love to hear if you've seen this before, but are there there mergers and acquisitions where someone's objective is, I'm going to buy a firm to deliver a better client experience to ours and their clients, or I'm going to buy a firm so that we can deliver a better uh, experience to our employees and the acquired employees. Looking at an acquisition as an enabler of better experience delivery rather than looking at experience delivery as something you got to figure out in order to make the merger acquisition happen. And I think if we approach mergers and acquisitions with a bit more of that mindset, how does this acquisition extend our capability to deliver high quality consistent experiences? uh, um, A lot of these human issues might just work themselves out. Yeah, I, I think you're you're asking kind
2: of a a Shakespearean fundamental question of of why acquire. Uh, and, and I think uh, most organizations, frankly, in this industry, grow organically. They they uh, win new clients, they win new projects, they hire people, and it's a very we 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 get the work, we get the people, and then we get the people and get the work kind of kind of mindset. And I think the the acquisition for a rationale, uh, it, you know, in 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 why are we doing this is. Should we acquire a company that does what we do? So it's, you know, we we do civil transportation engineering. Let's find a civil transportation engineering firm in in Texas so we can penetrate the tech stock market or California for the Caltrans market, or should we acquire a company in something we don't do, but we see high growth prospects. So we want to be in oil and gas, or we want to be in um, GIS or geospatial, you know, in certain industries where we don't have the acumen, but we're going to buy our way in, into that acumen. And I think in, in both cases, you, you know, buyers are looking to find companies that have great clients and great client relationships and, and why do clients use this target uh, that that we are acquiring? Is it for their skill and acumen? Is it a, is it a, price or, or, or value proposition, and it's obviously going to be the people and the project experience and delivery that they have. So, um, you know, part of this is, is, is trying to, to leverage the best practices of marketing and business development and end-to-end client experiences of the buyer, but obviously they are looking for, for clients uh, that have long-lasting client relationships, repeat clients, repeat project work, with the, with the thought that, they're they're using them regularly and from a repeat perspective because they're doing good work. So
1: I want to jump back a little bit to what Stephen Keith said. Um, He spoke pretty briefly just about the culture upstream, you know, things of that nature. So what should firms do, you know, upstream, midstream and downstream to most positively impact two cultures and, and, while merging them into one.
2: Yeah, I think you know that that is a great question, and you know, oftentimes there's there's no amount of money, or or perhaps some amount of money that that, that you 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 would not take uh, to do an acquisition if there wasn't cultural alignment. And and what is firm culture? Um, you know, some companies are are collaborative and collegial. Some are independent and hard charging. Um, Oftentimes there are norms and behaviors of what is accepted at one company versus what is accepted or not tolerated at another company. And frankly, it's not uncommon to have a company that's making the acquisition of 500, 1,500, 3,000 people buying a 40-person firm or a 10-person firm. And, and obviously, the size elements make cultural different. Is, is the culture of the target firm the kind of around the ethos and persona of the owners and, and founders? So, so oftentimes, uh, you know, companies will, will, will have early courtship meetings, and I've been a part of them for a long time. And you can just you know, tell whether they're singing off the same music sheet or, or, or they're not, and and it's 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 a likability, um, it's 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 a management compatibility perspective, um, if 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 they're talking from that alignment. So I, I think human nature. When, when, when you're talking to two groups of people, is it generally, do we like each other? Can we see ourselves working here? Is this group of, of people that we're thinking of buying in, in Charlotte or Sacramento, are they our kind of people? Can we see them, them, them fitting in well here? And can we see these owners who are successful entrepreneurs, more importantly, changing their role and, and getting along with everybody in a, in a big sandbox here from that perspective? And will there people follow? So, all of those things kind of really come into the um, early stage cultural part uh, of putting these combinations together. Very, very fragile, as I say.
1: Stephen, Brian, anything you wanna add here? I got a pretty good follow up question here that I wanna ask, but I wanna make sure you all have your opportunity to chat.
3: I know that Ryan's itching to ask a question about due diligence.
4: I'm just really curious, uh, Steve, you bring a lot of ideas here around how to make sure these things fit. What are you seeing happening in terms of, uh, uh, how firms are assessing, or talking about, or figuring out client and employee experience during the due diligence phase to see if that's going to be a fit.
2: Yeah, and and that's that's a great question and and a very delicate question. So if if you understand the kind of general process a, a merger or a combination or an acquisition take, it's it's generally the owners. Or or leaders of a target firm it's generally the the kind of c-level executives of of a buyer and they're talking about chemistry and 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 they're talking about overall synergy and about the clients they have and the financial performance that they've generated and then they will come to terms financial terms in in a in a letter of intent and then due diligence starts well you get a lot of folks that are kind of wrapped around tax issues, they're wrapped around insurance issues, they're wrapped around financial issues. Uh, but 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 ultimately, the the client experiences and the employee experiences are very important to kind of making these combinations work in in the long run. And it's it's interesting, Ryan, because part of the the ironies here is that it, it's very delicate to go and ask employees what they think of the company or, or, or clients at some of these tender stages where we think we have a deal done, but it's not inked yet. How, how do we understand the client needs and how they're perceived and the employee needs and how they're perceived at this stage? Most commonly buyers believe like, well, if, 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 companies, you know, if, if companies have been working for this target firm for a long time and they're doing good project work and good design, we make the assumption that they'll still be working with us as a combined unit going forward, but that's not always the case. You know, sometimes clients use a 30 person firm or a 10 person firm because they like the small, intimate experience or the fee schedule or the people that work there, and they don't necessarily want to work with a 3,000 person national firm doing various types of disciplines in various client sectors. So those are the types of discussions that typically unfold in due diligence. There's a financial and the tax and the quantitative due diligence. And I think that qualitative due diligence that happens throughout the process, and frankly, after close as well, about how we can expand our wallet with clients, how we can make sure the new employees onboard successfully. That's really the secret sauce in making these things work in the long run.
4: So I heard you talk about um, finding the chemistry in those early conversations. And so often I've seen companies talk about, you know, our our commitment to the clients and we do whatever it takes and all these things that sound real rah-rah and, and a lot of puppies and apple pie. Um, yeah. But where's the proof? And when I talk about due diligence, that's really the part I'm thinking of is, is how do you prove that you really are focused on the client, you really are engaging employees, and how do you factor that into even the offer before you make the offer? Yeah, yeah. And
2: and that's that's a great point because those those first meetings between buyers and sellers, you're exactly right. They are always very high level and they're always very complimentary and it's oh you you design that that library oh that's wonderful we also design libraries or oh you know we we also do army corps work let us tell you about our army corps experience and they're very high level and they're very flattering and and it's only until kind of the second or third or fourth meeting where you start to get some of the dirt under the fingernails as i talk about you know kind of really what it's like to work there, what it's really going to be like in the afterlife of combining two firms together. Um, one of, I think, the, the most powerful experiences that buyers that that do this fairly regularly have is when they're talking to a potential target, they can say, look, we, we know you have questions about how your employees will be onboarded with us. We know you have questions about how some of your valued clients might might view being part of our platform, you know, we've made six acquisitions over the last eight years and we'd like you to talk to Brenda in our Pittsburgh office or, you know, Shane in our Seattle office, both presidents who we've acquired over the last several years and now part of our footprint. And they can tell you what life has been like because they were in your shoes not too long ago. And hopefully they'll give a, a fairly, Straightforward and 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 productive experience with those new owners to 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 bring them on board about what life has been on on the other side, and I think that could be a very powerful experience for potential buyers in terms of bringing other sellers on board because the biggest advocate will be the ones who were in their shoes not too long ago.
3: Steve, I want to I want to ask a question about um, one of the things that I that, that we're seeing when working with some of the these firms on the probably more on the leading edge in terms of how they, um, how they talk about themselves, how they orient their, their, um, leadership and employees. Um, a lot of, a lot of these firms, uh, on what we call the leading edge are working really hard to differentiate themselves. So they're trying to stand out from another engineering company in the you know, in New England or whatever, they typically reach out to a firm like, um, client savvy or CX pilots to help them figure out how do you best do that? Like, how do you use, how do you use CX or, or EX as a, as a means to differentiate yourself in the process of going through that and, you know, finding like, how can we, how can we Defensibly differentiate on the basis of the experiences we provide to our both our employees, you know, our clients, and yep. even our partners. It, now, when it comes to these M um, and A talks, we find that the you know the firms that work really hard and make significant investments in trying to tell the world that they're they're different, you know, they're that they do things different, that sort of flies in the face of of merging two different cultures in a lot of cases, and so. I'm curious if like have you run into that if if not like does that I mean are there are there are there sensible ways of of alleviating this paradox?
2: Yeah, and I think Steve that all comes down to to elements of of business practices and and cultures and and vision and values and some companies that might be larger and are the acquirers can can talk about some of these topics that are that are important to their 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 workforce nationally. Whether it's about um, customer experiences and and um, making sure that there is a end to end satisfactory uh, a project ex- experience that that exceeds expectations. It's 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 talking about a environment that is. Um, open and transparent uh, to, to to their employees it's, it's it's about a company that that believes in in the power of of equality and and advancement for for all of their employees in in their organization whatever the values or mission statement that you might have and sometimes just to be realistic smaller companies that are typically the targets for these type of companies are just smaller and, and they're 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 generating a few million in revenue. And while they may have those values, they may not have the resources to be able to put into some of those types of activities. So those are some of the things that 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 you have to, to kind of keep in mind in, in the early stage of these discussions. And I think what's exciting for a lot of these smaller firms is Many of these owners eyes are open or like, look, you know, we would love to do these type of activities if only we had the managerial bandwidth, if only we had the, the, the financial resources to do that. So oftentimes that can be a great selling point for acquirers coming into that. Look, we have these platforms we use, we use a robust client feedback and experiences to, to kind of recalibrate and make this a better organization I would think a lot of targets that I've seen would just love that to to be able to extend that to their client base.
3: What year is it going to be before um, experience led um, approaches are actually a a criterion for acquirers?
2: Yeah, I, I, that, I, I I don't know the answer to, to that. I, I, I think there's a lot of old guard, old school uh, leaders that, that, that kind of assume uh, that a, uh, you know, company, if they are growing and they're showing a profit that lo and behold, they must be doing good work or clients must be using them because they love them, but you never know. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things under the hood that you just don't know without more diagnostic, um, and, and data-driven methodologies to understand that. So I would hope sooner rather than later.
1: You know, you, you got to think that with all the third party research that's being yeah. there, and, and you probably read this too, Steve, last year. You know, SNPS, <clears throat> they just released an article showing that they interviewed 500 C level executives from A.E. firms. And uh, I think it was 93% of them said that by 2021, client experience was going to be the number one reason why their clients chose to work with them and that price fell way down the list. Did you happen to see that reading?
2: Yeah, you know, you and I have talked about that before, and and I think that is that is consistent with a a underlying trend that 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 we've seen in this industry of of people in in who are leading AE firms who no longer want to be viewed as as commodity driven type of outfits. Is is there is a, a crowded field for the type of work we do, whether it's in healthcare design or or whether it's an environmental planning how do we differentiate ourselves with the client experiences that we do so it's not just driven by price why what can we do beyond a a a rate sheet to make clients stick with us and make them sticky with us in the long run i totally agree with that
1: yeah and you know the the statistics for those firms that that are you know, using CX and EX, you know, client experience and employee experience is their operational difference or operational discipline and, and point of differentiation. I mean, the the numbers are staggering what's happening with those firms and it's kind of irrefutable, right? So I think as a takeaway point for those who are listening uh, as followers of ROG and as followers of client savvy and CX pilots, if you're thinking about merging, if you're if you're thinking about doing an acquisition or selling uh, keep that at the forefront of your mind, just knowing that you know a large portion of the client base out there their their primary decision making matrix is going to have client experience at the top so I, I I would assume or hope that those firms that are very heavily involved at in m a will put client experience as as a big part of this acquisition process yep yep Steve, I think uh, i'd love to have you back i I know uh, I know Ryan and Steven would like to have you back as well. I think there could clearly be a part two of this at some point where we talk a little bit more about client concerns, you know, what happens post-sale to make sure the client experience doesn't suffer. Talk about, you know, the, the fair number of, of industry mergers that fail, why they fail, what can they do to prevent them. I think there's a whole lot of other stuff we can talk about given your schedule and, and everything going on. I know we've kind of got to cut this one short, but do you have any closing remarks for us around M&A, CX, EX, forward thinking thoughts that you can share with our listeners?
2: Yeah, I, I would just say first and foremost, thank you so much uh, to, to the three of you having me on here. This has been a great discussion uh, and, and sharing of, of ideas. Um, you know, we are living in unprecedented times. I mean, if, if any of us thought back in January or February, we would be uh, experiencing some of the um, uh, kind of social and, and, and office related changes that we have here, it would be unprecedented. So I think now more than ever, the AE industry has to align itself more aggressively with being long-term client thinking partners with their end user client and relationship experiences. And that transcends to, to thoughts on, on mergers and, 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 and acquisitions and consolidations. Ours is a consolidating industry. The bigger getting bigger, Smaller are joining mid-sized firms. Mid-sized firms are joining larger firms. The firms that generally do client experiences the best are going to be the long-term winners of this consolidation experience.
1: Thank you. What a, what a great closing remark. Uh, for all of our listeners, thank you for listening again. You can subscribe to our podcast on any of your favorite podcast channels. You can follow us on clientexperience.com. Please submit any of your questions to ClientExperience.com or any of your favorite podcasts. We look forward to talking with you in a few weeks. And uh, thanks to everybody on this call. Y'all have a great day.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Client Experience Collaborative Podcast. Please tell your friends and colleagues to subscribe in their favorite podcast app and visit us at ClientExperience.com. Please also send us your feedback and questions for the next episode on our website. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.